Welcome to Influencers. Everyone that we speak to will be making a difference in some aspect of cycling or micromobility. Some will be unsung heroes and others people that you might already know. That might be the case today when I'm talking to Osher Ginsberg. Osher is well known as a TV presenter, but as you'll see in this interview, he has a great passion and in-depth knowledge of all things cycling. Well, thanks, Osha, for being our first ever guest. I'm great. I'm grateful. I like what you've done with the place. Uh, <laughs> it's nice, you know. I'd expect that you would have quite the collection of bicycles, and this has not disappointed me. Very pleased to hear it. So, first question. Yes. Sir. How did you become interested in cycling way back when you were a kid, or whenever it was? Yeah, man. I think it was like most people. It was when I was a little kid. I had a first memory of was a, a tricycle with solid wheels it's made of cast iron or something it was <laughs> not a light bike dude and fixie too so had to do a lot of wheels feet off when you're going down the hills on that guy um that thing was awesome but it was the look it was the summer of 1982 and then everyone bought everyone got a bmx for christmas and you know we went from running around on the street to three days later 14 kids just in a pack hooning through the streets of Brisbane. The feeling of being eight years old and now being able to go further than my feet could carry me and not have to rely on my parents to get me somewhere was just amazing, all right? And to have the wind in my face, be riding with my friends and being able to explore um, the, the world beyond what I had previously been able to access, which was how far can you get before, you know, half halfway between there and when the streetlights go off when you have to be home. You know, that's about as far as we could go. Yeah. Um, and now we could go way, way, way further. And yeah. since then, I think there was a bit of a lull. And then I was doing overnight radio in Brisbane. I was about 22, 23. And I lived um, in an inner city suburb called uh, Cooparoo. And I bought a bike to, to ride to work. So I'd, I'd get on the bike about, you know, 11 o'clock, 11.15 p.m., ride to work, be on air by midnight, and then ride the bike, foolishly ride the bike home across the Story Bridge at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> Back then it was a bit tricky. The bike lanes weren't as good as they are now in Brisbane. But um, no, I've, and, you know, since then, I've just been really uh, right into it. It took a big uptick, um, in the early weeks of sobriety, I've been sober for 11 years now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not alone in sober people who go, I've got all this time that I used to spend drinking and using. What am I going to do now? It's something that's a compulsive thing that I can just do over and over again. Ah, cycling. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I started really kind of this, this phase of my cycling has been about, uh, about 10, 11 years now. And um, yeah, I love it. I'm just so grateful for every day I'm on a bicycle. It's the best. So tell me what your cycling life world looks like in these more recent years. I guess it changes depending on babies coming along. Well, absolutely. I'm a firm believer whenever you meet the significant other that you're going to either cohabitate with or spend a significant amount of time with, if you have a time-consuming hobby, you better be doing it when you meet him or her. You cannot two or three years in and go, oh, by the way, hun, I'm just going to chuff off 
and play 18 holes of golf every Sunday and leave you at home. You better be doing that when you meet. Like you better be a surfer. Like if you're just going to go down the coast and go surfing or whatever, like those things have to be in existence when you meet this person. So when I met Audrey, I was already like, uh, we're in Sydney right now and uh, there's a great ride uh, around West Head, which is, you know, you could probably do a metric ton from the Eastern beaches where I was living to there and back if you go the right way, which is beautiful. You go up to Barringer and look over at Barringer Headland where they make home and away and come back. And she knew that I did that, that I would just disappear for four or five hours at a time riding bicycles. And so that sort of stuff now, like I was doing that when I first came back to Australia to do Bachelor. And when I was back in Los Angeles, I was riding up to Panga Canyon every day. And um, it was great, a couple of hundred kilometers a week. Um, I don't know how many thousand feet of elevation, but it was brilliant, brilliant fun. Now that I'm a lot busier with work and now, you know, I'm, I'm a guy with a house and a mortgage and two kids. And so there's a lot less of that four or five hours away <laughs> riding, uh, which is where uh, the virtual cycling really kicks in. I am so grateful for um, Zwift and my, my kicker and... Uh, the Twitch community that I stream to when I'm riding because I just wouldn't get riding in. It just wouldn't happen. We've, mm. we've got a toddler, you've got kids. When they're little, you really, you can't just go see a honey, I'm off. But in the space of a nap, uh, which is anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours long, if you're lucky, you can get on and really fang yourself uh, on a trainer. If I didn't have the trainer, by the time I'd got my shoes on and I've charged everything, oh, where's the LED? Oh, that one doesn't fit. Oh, it's the wrong one. The bead on's mold. <laughs> by the time you get on the road, you've, oh, you know, you ride four Ks, turn around and come back. And it's, you know, I just don't have time for that. And so that's why I, I really now, I, I guess I'm a, I cycle virtually more than anything at the moment because I'm very yeah. busy with work. Yeah. But there'll be time for getting out on the road again shortly. So you've lived in different cities. You've lived in Los Angeles, yeah. Sydney, yeah. Brisbane. Yeah. I believe you were born in London, but didn't live there for any length Not of time. Very, very long but you studied in Amsterdam for I a while. I did. Yeah, I was this close to moving to Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, I did a eighteen-month course there at a business school in Amsterdam, and I would spend four to six weeks at a time there over those eighteen months, um, and it was just amazing. I don't have to tell you. It's the it's the promised land. 40,000 kilometers of, of, of bike infrastructure. And what a lot of people don't realize is that it wasn't always that way. It's only been that way since the 70s. And it totally transformed the country. And it's just amazing. I was, I was this close to moving there. And then I met Audrey and Georgia. I was like, ah, okay, nothing's as good as these two fantastic humans. So I moved back to Australia. But I'm particularly fascinated with how the bike infrastructure came along in the Netherlands, um, you know, you have this idea of, oh, it's a Dutch bike or the Dutch is always right or it's always been that way. It wasn't. After World War II, um, the Netherlands had colossal economic turmoil like a lot of Europe. It was just rubble. They had been occupied. They were stuffed. Um, when prosperity started to happen and people started going, you know, getting more economically uh, prosperous, they started to buy cars and it's a European country. It's like tiny little, you know, horse and cart roads that have been tarmacked over, village squares, this sort of thing. So now a lot of traffic on roads that just didn't have the space for it. The village squares, which were once big open plazas for people, became car parks because that's where all the shops and the villages were. Um, kids still love to ride bikes. 
So there's a lot of kids on bikes. As heaps more people started buying cars and driving around, um, it started. It was horrible, Phil. Like about, I think like a child a week was getting hit and killed by cars, and the public were just, we cannot have this. Just kids dying. We can't. We need infrastructure. We have to have infrastructure. This is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. This was right around where in the early 70s, there was the oil crisis. Um, you can look up in your history books as to how or why it happened, but basically oil prices went through the roof. In an effort to combat the energy usage of the country, the Netherlands went, okay, we need to figure out how to ration this petrol. No one drives on Sundays. Whole country, no one drives on Sundays. So on Sundays, people were like, how do we get, I guess we, we've got bikes all right around. And they started to rediscover their land, started to rediscover the streets, started to rediscover these beautiful plazas and go, actually, this is pretty cool. So it had this economic, this economic pressure from the oil being so expensive they couldn't uh, drive, this incredible sudden realization that, oh, this is beautiful when we ride around and we see each other and it's a great way to get around. And how can we stop our kids getting killed on the streets? And that all kind of brought together starting to build separated bike lanes for the bicycles in, in the Netherlands. And now it's 40,000 kilometers of, um, of bike infrastructure, separate bike lanes. And look, you just don't see overweight people on the streets of Amsterdam. You just don't because everyone rides everywhere. Always. I saw when I was there, I saw people as old as my mum in those mid seventies on bikes with their groceries and you, like you can't tell me it's not good for a public, for a country like ours that has a public health system that ultimately it's the taxpayer that bears the burden of diseases that are caused by um, uh, uh, kind of uh, morbidities around uh, not being physically active or, or, or not kind of getting out and about and seeing the world. Um, that, that wouldn't be a benefit as well for our country. Um, so yeah, uh, there's not every, country has those three big factors that the Netherlands had. They got very lucky there, uh, but it doesn't have to be all of Australia, but it would be amazing to see it here, man. This is a question I often ask myself about Netherlands, early 1970s. They made that decision. Yeah. Virtually, you could perhaps argue Germany, Denmark, certain other countries to maybe slightly lesser extent also made that decision. But certainly not Australia, not the United States, no. not Canada, not the UK. No. Why not? What, what, what does Australia need uh, to, to Look, spark that sort I, of thing? I, I don't know. I think it was the, mag the magical political will of doesn't matter what side of economics you come down on, children dying in accidents between a bike and a, and a, and a car uh, is a bad thing. And so there was the political will to just get it over the line mm. in that situation. Mm. Um, but look, when you look forward from where we are today, I, you know, I, I firmly believe that the, the lifestyle outcomes, the economic outcomes of our cities could be so vastly improved by separate cycling infrastructure. Um, look, I, I, I get, as a, someone who drives a car, rides a bicycle and rides a motorbike. I get why sometimes people don't want cyclists on the street. I get that. I get a thousand percent why some people just don't want to ride to work because they just don't feel safe with cars. I 100% get that. And it's really, really important to make people feel safe. And 
separate cycling infrastructure. I'm not saying it's like it's everywhere, but it doesn't look like it's that hard to make happen. And the, the economic benefits, the health benefits, the lifestyle-related disease benefits are just so vast for the community at large. And, not, and, then, and as we look forward, Phil, as we look forward to how do we, you know, what are simple ways that we as a community can bring our carbon imprint down uh, in Australia, uh, that for me is just a no-brainer. It's just a no-brainer. So you've mentioned health a couple of times yeah. now, and I want to touch on two aspects of your own health mm-hmm. where cycling has possibly played a role that you might be able to talk to me about. Yeah. And the first one, I understand that you had a hip replacement yeah. just before Christmas. I did. So can you tell me about cycling and your rehabilitation and what part that might have played in that story? So I had, I need both hips replaced, but I got the right one done first because it was a more painful one. Um, it's bananas because when I used to ride, when my knee came up, um, the the my bumpy um, head of my femur would go on my on my labrum, and I could feel it every time I I pedaled. It was just what my leg did. Now it's just like this super smooth kind of like you know. <laughs> It's really, really weird. At first, it was very strange. I had to get a another bike fit because now my geometry is slightly different. Um, my bike felt differently underneath me, so I got another bike fit, and it's amazing now. The re- rehab was very humbling because I'd gone from, uh, you know, up here as far as fitness goes and functional threshold power and things like this to, like, I could barely keep 55 watts for 10 minutes. That was it. And I had to lie down for a day. Um, But then I think, hang on, they carved open the front of my leg, pulled my, you know, quads out, pulled my psoas out, chopped the top of my femur off, hammered a thing in and shoved it. (laughs) Fair enough that I feel like this because these tendons and ligaments have been so traumatized by the surgery. Uh, And it's taking a lot longer than any other recovery that I've ever had, but it's gonna be okay. Like it's it's just coming to terms with how long it's taking to recover, but the good news is I have no arthritis pain, like none at all. I can sleep and that's brilliant. I used to have to build a pillow fort, you know, under my hips because I was in so much pain. I couldn't sleep without uh, medication. And, you know, I look at Wolf and I had, we've got, so our eldest is 17, but our youngest, he's a year and a half. I'm like, man, I'm going to be chasing you down Threbo on a mountain bike when I'm 60. I've got to keep, I've got to keep moving. I better get this done now before, you know, it's too late, before I start to then degrade, uh, you know, muscularly, et cetera, and everything else starts to mess up. So that's why I got it done now. And the bike is great right now for rehab. I'm clear to go back out on the road. I just, I just don't have time. But the bike's really great for rehab, yeah. So you're just on the indoor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the indoor trainer yeah. or yeah. the wahoo or whatever. Yeah, just on the trainer inside. Yeah, I I just don't have time to go out at this point. Yeah. Um, but you know, I will. <laughs> so the second area that you've been very open about yes. and written about, and even changed the name of your podcast about yeah. to better than yesterday, is your mental health. Yes. You know, struggles if you like. Yeah. And how have you found cycling in relation to to that issue, mental health? Well, I think the. The big misconception, Phil, is that mental health is somehow different from physical health. We're sitting in this place full of incredible bicycles, right? 
But if you don't keep up your level of fitness, you won't be able to get the most out of these bicycles. And that requires you getting on training, um, pushing into a degree of discomfort, your body adapting to that degree of discomfort and, and maintaining that uh, should you wish to, you know, keep riding at optimum speed and your body feels great because of it and you, you can think clearer and, you know, your bowels move well, whatever, you feel good, okay? So mental health is no different. Mental health is just, it's the same as physical health. It's, it's just health, okay? You don't accidentally have, a, you know, a great functional threshold power. You have to work quite hard to get and maintain it. Because we all know we've all come off holidays and we have forgot to reset the the thingo and then we get on the bike and we're just oh my god you know <laughs> this is hill steeper since i went on holidays no it's just because your body's detrained similarly if you don't take care of your mental health you will you'll start to slide and that's just the fact so taking care of your mental health or or keeping a maintenance program for your mental health is just as important as keeping a maintenance program for your physical health you don't accidentally get physically fit when you don't accidentally stay physically fit. You don't also accidentally have good mental health. You have to work at it, but it is worth it. What you get out of the work brings you an outcome that you would otherwise never have. And in my experience, that's, that's what's worked for me. And so you have to work at your mental health. Yes. And so cycling is a small part of that, a key part, just one of just many parts. Ex well, exercise is a part of it. Right. Okay, we are, we are human beings that uh, manufacture certain hormones that only get released when we exercise to a certain point of intensity. Dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, endorphins, these things get released when we cycle or weight lift or work out to a certain intensity. These are essentially the chain lube for the gears in our brain. They allow us to shift mood states a lot easier through the day. All right. If we don't use our body to this intensity, those things don't get released as well. And we find it a lot harder to shift from mood states. Now, what do, what do I talk about? I'm like, like if you're pissed off with someone who, who cut you off on the way to work, 15 minutes later, you could probably walk into work into your first meeting of the day still pissed off. And that could blow the deal. Whereas if you are keeping a good mental health regime, you'll be able to recognize, oh, I'm pissed off. And you'll, you'll be able to emotionally regulate far far better like fine to get pissed off i'm not saying don't get pissed off but you'll be able to emotionally regulate far easier if your body is flooded with these hormones that allow you to shift mood states so when you walk into your first meetings you're free of it and then you know deal gets done everyone walks away happy. <laughs> let's talk about a couple of things you've been doing lately yeah. so last year you joined we ride australia the yeah. peak australian advocacy body yeah. as a director mm. um what what motivated you to do that and what would you hope to achieve or see the organization achieve? I had previously served on a board of SANE Australia, uh, which is, uh, they work very hard in the mental health space. And I stepped, they have three year, you know, uh, board terms. Yeah. And after my first term, I, I stepped away. Um, because we had a new baby and I wanted to dedicate the right amount of time uh, for things. When the We Ride opportunity came up, the amount of time required to make sure that it would be worth saying yes to for them so that would get the most out of me. Um, I talked to my wife about it and we figured that we could make it work. Why, re why We Ride is important to me is they tick all the boxes. They tick for me, 
uh, a focus on infrastructure and you know a focus on mental health a focus on advocacy that it's not about racing it's not about elite sport it's about people using bicycles to get from here to there don't care what kind of bike it is put a motor in it i don't care you know <laughs> it's it's not middle-aged dudes in lycra it's people just getting to work people doing their groceries people picking their kids up from school kids riding to school people using that as their main form of commuting and supporting those people therefore supporting the health of you know our community not only um, the physical health but also the atmospheric health if you will less cars on the road less carbon in the atmosphere better for everybody mm. well, well done for that here to help mate and, and another thing obviously close to my heart is World Bicycle Relief and, yeah. and you've become an ambassador in Australia essentially for World Bicycle Relief. Once again, what was your motivation for that? I remember when World Bicycle Relief started, I remember just being so transfixed by the story. Um, for me, it's, it's a piece of metal with some rubber. If I'm, you know, fancy, maybe have some carbon fiber involved, but none of my bikes, I don't think, or maybe one of them. For another person, it is literally life-changing. It is literally the difference between going to school, getting an education, or being married at the age of 12. And that is that can change the outcome of someone's life completely. My eldest, she went to, um, she did an exchange trip to Cambodia a couple of years back, and they raised some money before they went, and they gave a kid at this school, they gave her a bicycle. And... You know, from what I remember about when, when World Bicycle Relief launched, I remember that basically the same story was so completely true for this kid in Cambodia and that she lived so far away from the school, she could only go a few days a week because that was the days where like a truck was coming this way. Had she not had this bicycle, her outcomes would have been pretty limited. Um, yet just this, you know, 20 kilo piece of metal and rubber can change this person's life. and. That is amazing. I love the design of the bike. I love that it's uh, not in Australia, but they told me that it can, it can carry about five people, <laughs> Bali style, if you want, uh, which is a great, like it's, it's the, you know, it's the Kia Carnival, but you pedal it. It's brilliant, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. And that, you know, that can absolutely, that can change someone's life. It's the difference between economic, you know, getting by economically or getting ahead economically and therefore trying to improve the outcomes for your kids from where you are. We may, you know, look, we're sitting at, like, these things are just fun things for us, all right? We're looking at these bicycles around us. Some of them are so expensive. I can't, I, I don't know how people stay married after they buy them, I swear. But when I look at the work that World Bicycle Relief does, when I see how transformational that Buffalo bike can be for people, um, I just really, really, really wanted to support it because it, it's, it's so what I'm all about. There's... There's ways that you can go, you know, everyone should be on solar or this, that, and the other, da, 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 da. Like just giving a bicycle to someone is enough sometimes to change yeah. a person's life. Yeah. And just being present to that, uh, I think is a really powerful thing. Yeah. And um, I'm actually, because of my hip replacement, I wasn't able to like raise money by doing massive charity rides or anything like that. So um, it's in a wild way, I'm raising money for World Bicycle Relief by singing people's songs on Instagram. <laughs> and so there's, a, there's an app called Cameo. And if, if people want me to sing them a happy birthday or, you know, I've, I've hired people. I've said, congratulations, you've got the job. And I've sung a little <laughs> song and they've emailed that to someone and that's the way they let them know. 
and all that money goes towards bicycle relief. And we've, I've raised a couple of grand, like just playing silly songs in my little office. And it's great. What a brilliant idea. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, excellent. There's two final questions I want to ask you, or two final areas. You, it's your show, mate. Do whatever you see, want. See where they travel. But firstly, just looking more broadly at Australia, and then I want to focus in finally as you as a father and a family man and so on. So more broadly in Australia, you know, of all the things we could do to grow cycling, and we're talking active travel, micro-mobility here, not just the narrow definition of cycling, be it scooters or whatever. So of all the things we could do to grow that now, 2020-2021 in Australia, what do you think is the most important one or two things that we could or should be doing? I think first and foremost, uh, a distinctive focus on separate bicycle infrastructure uh, in key inner city areas and key linking routes between, um, you know, high transit parts of, of cities. Not a painted white line, like a curb, okay? <laughs> Uh, you start making people feel more safe riding to work. Uh, you're going to have to stop spending billions of dollars tunneling under the city, building four lane. You know, I was in one of those tunnels today on the motorbikes. How much did this thing cost? You know, this squillions, the tolls, eight bucks. You know, like how long is this going to last? How, how long until there's not enough space in it for the cars that come when, you know, if you build enough cycling infrastructure and support that with public transport that can have a bike sitting on it, separate cars I've seen in some parts of Europe there are separate cars for for bikes little bike rack in the in the train you know you'll you'll save money on roads you'll save you're just frankly you will um, I think there's some really simple things economically that could do that wouldn't take any anything to do like if you uh, and we have the capability to do it right now if you have like a verified source say for example a, a, a GPS um, on your phone or a bike computer, if you can prove that you, during commuting times, rode a certain number of kilometers per year, there's a discount on your rego. You know, like that, you're giving people an economic incentive, all right? Uh, perhaps that could come off the cost of a new bike. Um, like if you want to save money on building road infrastructure, build bicycle infrastructure. It's that, it's that easy. When you look at the lengths of people's actual commutes that they actually drive in cars, it's really not that long. It's less than an hour on a bike and sometimes in traffic, it's quicker on a bicycle. Yet people just don't feel safe on a, on a bike. And that's completely fair enough. I'm terrified of white utes with pea plates. Terrified. Terrified of, of the big white van. Terrified. Why would they look for me? They don't. I'm on a motorbike and they still don't see me. And that's fine. But I am prepared to take that risk, though I know that I'm in a tiny minority. There are so many people that if they had that safe option, they would 100% do it. Because you can pick up an e-bike for like really, really like less, less than the cost, a third of the cost of a car. You never have to pay car insurance, never have to pay rego on it. Arrive to work without being sweaty. Uh, which is a big, a big worry for people. Don't have to worry if your work's got crappy end of ride facilities, though I would love to see an economic incentive for, for that. Yeah. Um, but with the, the rise of e-bikes and like that's, that is huge, there's a hockey stick right there. Um, giving those people 
on those e-bikes the opportunity to feel like they can get to work safely, it would, like how many cars would you take off the road? How much pressure would you take off the public transport system? It's a, it's a no-brainer for people who are in power that claim to be economic rationalists. The numbers are just so starkly there, like the solution is there and the people are willing if they feel safe. And, you know, you're gonna take a lot of, <laughs> you take a lot of traffic off the road if you build, not, you're not gonna be building 40,000 Ks of it like they have in the Netherlands. You don't need that much, but it's enough to make those people feel, and there'll be a tipping point. There will be, there'll be a tipping point when. So let's talk about that yeah. and the tipping point and you as a family man. Yeah. And to take out Wolfie and Audrey yeah. out on the road, yeah. What's it going to need? What, what's the threshold before you would feel comfortable? To, or have you ever done that in the first instance? Oh, I've taken Wolfie out with me for sure. Yeah. Uh, but my wife's not a fan of that. Yeah. He's got the, the baby. Just put a baby on your shoulders, right? That's how you do it, isn't it? <laughs> no, he's got a seat. Seat's in front. He's big enough now that he has to get in the back, so I'm going to have to yeah. get one of those. Um, look, I, I see people in my neighbourhood, they have uh, cargo bikes with a big bench seat in the back. Um, they've got the electric... Uh, capability there, brilliant, um, which is a cracker for the neighbourhood that we live in, which is very limited parking, certainly in, in school zones and school zone times. I'd be very comfortable uh, taking the kids to school like that. I don't know how comfortable my wife would be with me taking the kids to school like that, and that is totally fine. Unless everyone's cool with it, it's not going to happen, and I totally appreciate that. It would take a separate a, a separate lane. It would it would take a separate lane. Um, it's not hard to do. There'd be city councils that could, you know, pop it in and, you know, brag. <laughs> look, look at what we've got. Come and live here. We're a recycling friendly community. Your family's no different to the majority. Women are really the indicator species or the canary in the coal mine, if you like, in terms of threshold of acceptability for risk when cycling. Would you agree with that? Well, because they are far smarter and far more clever when it comes to assessing what's a good or a stupid idea. Um, I'm, you know, have like three neurons that jump together, and if I get two out of three, and, and one of them ticks, well, that looks exciting. I'll do it. You know, heads why on a motorbike. Uh, but I think Audrey has the ability to, you know, kind of go, hang on a second here. Like really, at tradie o'clock. You want to you want to take the kids out on bikes when you know the the boys are fanging to smoko, you know there's three blokes in the front of a, a crew cab, you know going through tender while they're trying to drive. They're not going to be looking for us, and that's not ideal. Nobody wants that. Those guys don't want that. They don't want to go through their life having hurt someone on a bicycle. Nobody nobody wants like as cyclists. I think and look. Please address all, all, all of your complaints to sendoshiremail at gmail.com. Um, I think cyclists can play victim to a point where people just write them off and that's not helping anybody, all right? Like think of the last time that someone said, oh my God, vegans, they never shut up about not eating meat. <gasps> that's how you sound, okay? That's how you sound and you're turning people off. Um, you just have to appreciate that if you're, if you're driving in a car, and you hit a kid on a bike on the way to school, that's gonna destroy the rest of your life, all right? And the person driving the car doesn't want that either. They don't want that either. So it's not just about protecting cyclists, it's about protecting people in cars from doing something like that accidentally. Nobody wants that.
Mm. So how do we protect everybody involved in the situation? I understand that riding a bike isn't for everyone, mm. but there are so many people, the research has shown there's so many people that would be willing to do it if they felt safe. And I, I, I can't see uh, an easier, more like easily implementable, vastly, profoundly changing solution to our transportation needs in the cities of our country of Australia than just popping that extra cycle lane in. Um, it, it, does, it will take political will, but once people feel safe, it'll, it'll change. Like there was a point when, when I, I've been in television a really long time. I've been in television since it was in, since it was in four by three. You're watching this in 16 by nine, okay? So it's out here, all right? But I've been in since it was like kind of square. So there was a point when we shifted from, you know, that from analog to digital, okay? And everyone's like, oh, digital TV, amazing, amazing. And then there was a confluence of when mobile phone screens got bigger at the same time as data uh, caps went up. And now it was viable to watch entire TV shows on your phone. What happened to the ratings that my industry relies on? Why would I walk to the living room when I can lie in bed? I'm watching the same show, but so similarly, there's gonna be a point when the technology of these e-bikes drops, the price drops so far that they are quite easily accessible to people who are going, well, how much is the train costing me every year? How much does the car cost me every year? This thing's only a couple grand. I'll have paid for it by June um, and then it's free you know, because that's what I would have been paying on train tickets or bus tickets or whatever, or it, rego or petrol. Okay, great. And then there's suddenly going to be all these bikes on the road. Mm. And I would like to see this infrastructure in place before that's going to happen, because it will happen. It will happen. People are looking for a cheaper, you know, easier way to get to work. And e-bikes, e man, it's going to change. It's going to change everything, completely change everything. So you're already starting to paint a picture of the future. And that's my final question yeah. for you, Osha. You know, think of when Wolfie's teenager or yeah. project further into the future, what sort of physical and cultural landscape, if you like, would you like to see around cycling and active transportation in 10, 20 years time? What, what, what's your vision for the um, future? Around cycling and active transportation, I guess I would like to see, you know, it'll be from one summer to the next. It'll be like, I can't believe we used to think that way about riding. And then suddenly it will just be everywhere because even your mum can get on an e-bike and feel safe and realize that she can ride, you know, 15 Ks to go see her friend and park right in front of wherever she wants to go. You know, that's the other thing, never pay for parking. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and then ride home and you'll feel okay about your, you know, septuagenarian grandparent getting on a bicycle and being fine with it because there's an electric motor that's pushing them along. Um, I would like to see Wolf uh, live in a world where the, at the same time as the electric vehicle um, revolution uh, comes to our streets, there's a, a, a large amount of, if not autonomous, semi-autonomous um, rider identification. There's already quite a fair bit of that. There's some really interesting LiDAR technology that's coming on. But I, I dare say that it won't be long before um, the Internet of Things uh, technology is now, uh, like the bicycles are pinging all the other vehicles around them 
in the same way that the vehicles talk to each other that you know the bike will be like on this network and the bike is registered and so even though it's around a, a corner which is already the technology is already there, already there for vehicles but I, I, I dare say that, that that will be something that will be um, and it'll just be a part of it it'll be a part of the overall system um, yeah I, I we are never before in history has an economic externality been so intensely visible as um, the carbon in the atmosphere it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying the last week the observatory, the really tall one, high observatory in, in Hawaii, registered 420 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, carbon dioxide. Pre-industrial revolution was 280, we're at 420, all right? 100 parts per million of carbon dioxide is the difference between us being in an ice age and not being in an ice age. So just to give you an idea of how much danger we're in, that's how much carbon's in the atmosphere. This is the the locked in changes that we are going to see take effect. So within 20, 30 years, decarbonisation of the atmosphere is going to be so the only thing we talk about, it will be a no brainer for people to ride bicycles because that is, it's such a, a, a much smaller amount of energy it takes to create the bicycle, a much smaller amount of energy if you're using an e-bike, um, maybe a little bit more, but to ride it, you're using calories. Um, like. Energy-wise, for us getting around, it's, it's, it is the future of transportation. Bicycles are the future of transportation. Well, Osha, I think, I think people that know you from your mainstream TV would be deeply impressed by the incredible depth of knowledge that you've exhibited. I've probably blown them away because I'm not whispering. <laughs> yeah. well, I really appreciate you coming on. You no part. worries, man. Like, I, I'm grateful. Like, and that's the other thing. Don't forget how much fun it was when you were a kid to feel the wind in your face when you're riding a bike. It still feels that good. And I'm nearly 50 and I've got a false hip. It <laughs> still feels that good. It's amazing. Go and do it. And you really don't ever forget. They're right. You don't forget. Yeah. <laughs> right. No worries, man. Thank Thanks you. very much. Thanks for having me, Phil. My pleasure. I better get out of here before I buy anything. <laughs> <laughs>